Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Two worlds would collide in the summer of 1961 when a young nightclub showgirl and a British cabinet minister would meet by chance on an aristocrat's Buckinghamshire estate. Also present that fateful weekend was a Russian spy and a successful man about town whose wit and charm had secured him his position in London's high life. No one could have known on that hot Sunday afternoon as they relaxed by the estate swimming pool that this meeting would pave the way for a national sex and security scandal that would lead to tragic personal disaster. It was the beginning of what would soon become the swinging 60s. It was also the beginning of the permissive age. At the same time, we saw the dawn of interrogation by the media. This would prove to be the turning point where suddenly politicians and public figures' private lives in the eyes of the media would now become the property of the public at large. But behind the dramatic headlines was a human story. A story that led to a man taking his own life. A man now generally seen as a scapegoat for the whole affair. Almost every individual in this story has articulated or written an interpretation of their version of the events, and pretty much none of them actually agree with each other as to what happened. The entire incident has so many viewpoints that there is no one account that could tell the story effectively and involve everything that would be true. And in a way, this is what makes this story so fascinating and almost mysterious. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the Profumo Affair. After an incident in Wimpole Mews, West London, this morning, when a man was reported to have leapt from a minicab and fired shots towards the building, a 30-years-old West Indian was tonight charged with shooting, with intent to murder, Miss Christine Margaret Keeler. This is my story, the story of my life, the Christine Keeler story. At the moment, the only signs of the shooting are two uniformed policemen, one plainclothes policeman, Two bullet holes in the front door and a smashed window in the back door. 
Those shots fired in a quiet, respectable London muse in December 1962 would bring to the attention of the public an affair that involved call girls, cabinet ministers, Russian spies and suicide. It would eventually lead to front-page scandal and political disaster, including the resignation of the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, and the eventual toppling of the government. Our story starts a couple of years back in 1960. It's the height of the Cold War. This was the age where secret agents thrived. The British government was swamped by a deluge of grim news. Moscow was threatening to use missiles to protect Cuba from the United States. The Soviets had shot down an American U-2 spy plane and captured its pilot Gary Powers. And on March the 27th, a new spy was welcomed into the Soviet embassy in London under the cover of Deputy Naval Attaché. His name was Eugene Ivanov, and under the command of the GRU, the Soviet Military Intelligence, he was instructed to root out British military and political secrets. MI5 are soon on to Ivanov through one of their Russian double agents, Oleg Pekonsky, who informs them that Ivanov has a few weaknesses that they could take advantage of. Ivanov is a heavy drinker and a notorious womaniser. He is married into the Soviet elite with his father-in-law being the secretary of the Supreme Soviet. And in fact, he's the perfect target for compromise. MI5 quickly conjure up a plan. Entice Ivanov into bed with a call girl, take pictures with a hidden camera and blackmail him. In this way, they would hopefully persuade him to defect or even become a double agent. In short, a honey trap. Have you ever wanted to be a famous opera singer or an archaeologist? To most of us in more ordinary careers, these are just idle dreams. But let's introduce a London osteopath who, after reaching the top of his profession, decided he'd like to conquer another field. And, as you'll discover, he looks like succeeding. The second subject is art, and these talented hands belong to Dr. Stephen Ward. His subject on this occasion is, well, see for yourself. In order to carry out this honey trap, they call on the services of another man about town. His name is Dr. Stephen Ward. Ward was 51 years old and trained as an osteopath in the United States. Here, Ward was permitted to cast aside some of the stuffiness and the inhibitions that being the son of a respected vicar brought with it. Having been trained in America, Ward's qualifications were not officially recognised in this country, so he set up a medical practice in Devonshire Street, just close enough to Harley Street for people not to notice. Not that it really mattered, for Stephen was a charmer, a gentleman and a bon viveur. His practice flourished, attracting patients such as the American Ambassador, Lord William Astor and even Winston Churchill. Ward was also an accomplished portrait artist. Among his subjects, comedian Terry Thomas, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, Sophia Loren and even Prince Philip. He lived at 17 Wimpole Mews. From here, he cultivated celebrities and some of London's most beautiful party girls, introducing them to the wealthy upper class. Ward had just what MI5 needed for the Ivanov caper, a unique talent for setting up sexual encounters that will enable them to blackmail the Russian spy. An MI5 agent, codenamed Woods, approached Ward and suggested he set up the Russian. Ward agreed to work for MI5. The agent suggested one of Ward's girls as the bait in the honey trap, and her name was Christine Keeler. Christine was born in 1942. During the war, her father abandoned the family and she was brought up by her mother and stepfather in the Berkshire village of Raysbury. Aged only 15, Christine found work as a model at a dress shop in Soho. At 17, there was a brief affair with an American officer from the Air Force base at Laleham, which resulted in the premature birth of a son who would sadly only survive six days. And in 1959, Christine would leave Raysbury and head for London on a more permanent basis.
At first she found work as a waitress in a restaurant in Baker Street, and it was here that she met Maureen O'Connor, who would introduce her to Percy Murray. Percy Murray, the owner of Murray's Cabaret Club in Soho, hired her almost immediately as a topless showgirl, and it was here that Christine would meet Stephen Ward. Christine would soon move into Ward's London flat, along with her friend and fellow showgirl Mandy Rice-Davis. Ward introduced Christine to the rich, the powerful, the famous and the infamous, and soon, as requested by MI5, he would introduce her to Ivanov. It is July the 8th, 1961. At the elegant and historic Cliveden Estate, the Lord of the Manor is preparing for one of his famous frequent extravagant parties. Lord William Astor, Bill to his friends, was a member of the House of Lords. He was also the grandson of William Waldorf Astor, the vastly wealthy Anglo-American publisher. Astor and Ward, being part of each other's social circle, are very close friends. Within the grounds of the vast estate on the banks of the Thames sits a small cottage. So close is the friendship between Lord Astor and Stephen Ward that Ward paid only a token £1 a year to rent it. And it is here that fates would intertwine on that July weekend, resulting in the inevitable scandal. The second weekend in July 1961 was exceptionally warm. Stephen Ward took advantage of the fine weather and invited Eugene Ivanov, Christine Keeler and a few other girls to a party at the cottage. As it happened, Lord Astor was also having a party at the mansion on the very same weekend. A party whose guest list was studded with wealth and power. The two groups would eventually meet at the swimming pool but MI5's honey trap would attract the wrong man. The Conservative government in 1961 had held power for 10 years. The Minister for War was John Profumer, Jack to his friends. 46 years old, an aristocrat and ex-public schoolboy a young and very successful politician who was elected youngest member of the House of Commons and was also married to the actress Valerie Hobson. That fine July weekend found Profumo not tied to affairs of state and he was invited along with 30 other distinguished guests to the Astor's Clifton Estate for dinner. As usual, the Astor's guest list would include wealthy and weighty members of both government and high society, including Lord Mountbatten and the President of Pakistan. Meanwhile, at the cottage, Ward suggested that his party take advantage of Lord Astor's hospitality and take a dip at the Clifton Outdoor Swimming Pool. Christine found an ill-fitting swimsuit from those provided by his lordship for his guests, and after not such a great deal of encouragement from Ward, she was soon naked and diving into the pool. Towards the end of the evening, upon hearing the sounds of laughter and splashing from the pool, several of Lord Astor's guests decided to investigate. In front, leading the party ahead of the others, was Astor and Profumo. There before them stood a naked, wet and very uncomfortable Christine Keeler, who swiftly covered her embarrassment, as well as everything else, with a towel. Astor and Profumo chased her around the pool, before Ward, in the nick of time, switched on the floodlights, just as the remainder of the inquisitive party appeared, a group which included the wives of both Astor and Profumo. What followed was some very awkward introductions all round. 
Christine found another swimsuit and eventually Ward's entourage was invited up to the main house. Christine was led on a guided tour of the house by Profumo. Here she continued to be the centre of attention, even climbing into a suit of armour and parading around the house. Jack Profumo was becoming infatuated. Christine returned home to Wimpole Mews that evening but was invited back to Clifton the following day and returned with two girlfriends and Ivanov. That Sunday was even hotter than the previous day and Christine once again found herself the centre of attention at the pool. Both Ivanov and Profumo competed for her attention during the lively water games that occurred that afternoon. By the end of the weekend, Profumo had secured Christine's telephone number from Stephen Ward, and as Ward watched all of this unfold before him, he sensed that Christine's attention may be drifting towards the wrong man. He asked Ivanov to drive her home to Wimpole Mews. Christine invited Ivanov in for coffee. He'd brought along a bottle of vodka, and hey presto, the honey trap was sprung. Jack Profumo, meanwhile, would not waste any time in pursuing Christine. Their first date was a drive around London in his ministerial limousine. Although Christine didn't find the Secretary of State for War particularly handsome, his air of authority and influence enticed and captivated her. Ivanov's affair with Christine would continue, and he would find himself invited back numerous times to Cliveden. Here, he would go through Lord Astor's mail, taking copies of it using a small hidden camera. Ivanov would also use his friendship with Stephen Ward to gather information. Ward was, after all, osteopath and friend to the rich, the famous and the powerful. Ward would joke with Christine that with Eugene on one hand and Profumo on the other, they could start a war. A comment that would backfire on him over the following two years. Profumo would continue to meet with Christine at Ward's flat over the following weeks. He even managed to sneak her into the family home while the staff were in bed. Christine would state that the couple had sex on the marital bed as well as in his car, and even one time in Regent's Park. Profumo would bestow gifts on Christine, including an expensive cigarette lighter and £20 for her mother, his polite way of paying for her services. Christine would later sum up the whole affair as a very well-mannered screw of convenience. By the end of that summer, MI5 had discovered that the Secretary of State for War was sharing a call girl with a Russian spy. Sir Norman Brooke, the government's cabinet secretary, summoned Jack Profumo to his office on August the 9th. The affair was barely a month old. Sir Roger Hollis, the head of MI5, was fully aware of the ivanov keeler profumo triangle and wanted to warn Profumo to watch his tongue when meeting with Stephen Ward. Ward's MI5 spy controller had written a report saying Ward is so much under Ivanov's influence that it would be unwise to trust him. Ward could be considered as a reckless gossip and there was a danger that he may pass on tidbits of information to Ivanov in casual conversation. What MI5 really wanted was Profumo to be part of the honey trap operation designed to compromise the Russians sexually, hopefully leading him to pass on secrets or even defect. But Profumo, realising that his marriage and his impressive career were in jeopardy, turned down MI5's request, seeing the scheme as just another unnecessary complication. The agency feared that Profumo would be blackmailed into revealing state secrets. MI5 discreetly warned him to wind up the affair with Christine. 
That evening, Profumo wrote what was to be his farewell letter to Christine Keeler. He spent the rest of the summer with his family, and as far as he was concerned, the matter was no more. Stories of the scandalous love triangle began to slip out discreetly amongst society circles, but the public at large remained blissfully unaware. And there it may have ended, an embarrassed cabinet minister unwittingly caught in an MI5 plot that failed. The world might never have known, had it not been for an incident at Wimpole Mews. After an incident in Wimpole Mews, West London, this morning, when a man was reported to have leapt from a minicab and fired shots towards the building, a 30-years-old West Indian was tonight charged with shooting with intent to murder Miss Christine Margaret Keeler. It's no secret that Christine had many challenges for her attention. Two of her many lovers were the West Indians Aloysius Lucky Gordon and Johnny Edgecombe. Gordon was enviously obsessed with Christine. According to her, he had once held her hostage for several days after violently assaulting her. Gordon's brother appealed to her better nature and she dropped all charges relating to the incident as he believed that Gordon would receive a particularly long sentence due to his violent criminal record. Once Christine had finally pried herself free from Lucky Gordon's advances, she bought herself a revolver to protect herself from him. Johnny Edgecombe would act as a sort of a minder, and one night in a club in Soho, Edgecombe and Gordon would meet. Not amicably, of course, Edgecombe cut Gordon's face with a knife, leaving a gaping wound that would require 17 stitches to patch up. Edgecombe went into hiding from the police. Christine, fearing for her life, moved out of Wimpole Mews to avoid Gordon. Edgecombe realised he couldn't remain in hiding forever, and so he asked Christine to help him find a solicitor before surrendering himself to the police. But Christine, who was envious of the fact that Edgecombe had found a new lover, made a decision that would trigger the revelation of the entire Profumo affair. She told Edgecombe she would not help him, and she planned to testify against him in court. In the early afternoon of the 14th of December 1962, Edgecombe, incensed with rage, pulled up outside Stephen Ward's flat in Wimpole Mews. Christine just happened to be there visiting Mandy Rice Davis at the time. The girls, obviously scared of what Edgecombe would do, refused to let him in. Infuriated, Edgecombe blasted the door with the revolver that had once belonged to Christine. Neighbours, on hearing the startling uproar, raised the alarm and Wimpole Mews was quickly crawling with police and journalists. Edgecombe fled in a taxi and was later arrested at his flat in Brentford. The press, energised by the whole affair, had no idea of the story that was about to be unleashed. This entire episode proved to be a spark that would ignite a flame that would eventually sweep through Parliament and into the gaze of a fascinated public. Christine's story was revealed to Michael Eddowes, a solicitor friend of Stephen Ward. Christine would also inform ex-Labour MP John Lewis, who, unbeknownst to her, was an affirmed opponent of Stephen Ward. Lewis now believed that he was in a prime position to destroy Ward, he met with Labour MP George Whig, a confirmed critic of Profumo, and discussed the entire affair, particularly with regard to the security risk it may pose to the country. Lewis would continue by drip-feeding the police stories and allegations that Ward was running a call girl service. His accusations were of course entirely false, but the police were taking them seriously. By now, January 1963, the incident produces gossip and spawns numerous rumours. 
The Houses of Parliament are buzzing with speculation, with tales that link the Secretary of State for War with party girl Christine Keeler and a Russian spy. Events now began to unfold before a captivated public at a rapid pace. January the 16th saw the committal hearing for Johnny Edgecombe. Two days later, Ward would meet with Ivanov for what would prove to be the last time, and on the 22nd of January, Christine sold her story for £1,000 to the Sunday Pictorial. The story would include intimate details of the affair and allegations that Profumo had left himself open to the blackmail of a spy. One week later, Ivanov would slip quietly out of the country and return to the Soviet Union. Ward heard rumours that Christine had sold her story to the press and immediately contacted Jack Profumo and Bill Astor. Intense negotiations involving Keeler and the solicitors representing Ward and Profumo took place. MI5 were approached to issue a D-notice to stop publication but refused when its head, Roger Hollis, stated that he didn't wish to see his department stained by the public scandal. It's not clear what the negotiations actually involved. What is known is that it was eventually proposed that Christine drop the story and leave the country in return for £5,000. It's also believed that Christine may have been advised that accepting such a sum of money could leave herself wide open to a charge of extortion. Whatever the case, the deal soon fizzled out. The pressure on Warden Keeler eventually proved too much and they found themselves arguing on a daily basis. Whilst Christine was giving a police statement with regard to the Edgecombe hearing, in anger, she revealed even more details of her relationship with Profumo and Ivanov. In the statement, she claimed that Ward was a procurer for gentlemen in high places and that he was also sexually perverted. Christine even stated that Ward had asked her to get atomic secrets from Profumo. For the next two months, the story would refuse to go away. It was just bubbling under the press headlines. Edgecombe would be sentenced for seven years for the possession of a firearm. Christine would briefly leave the country with friends for a short holiday in Spain, thereby reawakening the press interest in her. And Profumo would be quizzed by various high-ranking members of the government and Conservative Party. This brief disappearance of Christine Keeler would spell disaster for Jack Profumo. The press at last had found a way to link the Edgecombe Keeler case to him. On the 15th of March 1963, the Daily Express's front page showed a picture of Christine Keeler under the headline Vanished. In the next column, a picture of Profumo next to the words War Minister Shock. Profumo offers his resignation for personal reasons and the Premier asks him to stay on. And although this story was not entirely accurate, as Profumo had discussed his resignation weeks before with the Chief Whip and not the Prime Minister, and had decided against it story would now remain front-page news from this moment on. Over the next six days, the whispers in Parliament became louder. Questions about the immorality of the government were being raised. And in a debate on the evening of the 21st of March 1963, Labour MP George Whig, who for months had been seeking a way to raise the Profumo case under the protection of parliamentary privilege, stood up just before midnight in the House of Commons and stated, There is not an honourable member in this House, nor a journalist in the press gallery, who in the past few days has not heard rumour upon rumour involving a member of the government front bench. The press has got as far as it could. It has shown itself willing to wound, but afraid to strike. That being the case, I rightly use the privilege of the House of Commons to ask the Home Secretary to go to the dispatch box. He knows that the rumour to which I refer related to a Miss Christine Keeler and Miss Davis and a shooting by a West Indian, and on behalf of the government, categorically deny the truth of these rumours. Pro 
Profumo was dragged out of bed and rushed to Westminster where it was decided that it was evident that Profumo should give a personal statement to the House before the press ran Whig's speech on their front pages. Profumo reiterated that he was innocent, but those present, including the Chief Whip, Solicitor General and the Leader of the House, thought it highly likely that he was lying. After all, as a fellow Conservative would later remark, Profumo was not a man ever likely to tell the absolute truth in a tight corner. A statement was put together by 4.30 that morning. Profumo returned home to a house overwhelmed by members of the press. Profumo would return to the House of Commons a few hours later, and shortly after 11 o'clock, with Prime Minister Harold Macmillan at his side, Profumo rose to tell the historic lie that would not be forgiven. With permission, Mr. Speaker, I wish to make a personal statement. I understand that my name has been connected with the rumours about the disappearance of Miss Keeler. I last saw Miss Keeler in December 1961, and I have not seen her since. I have no idea where she is now. Any suggestion that I was in any way connected with or responsible for her absence is wholly and completely untrue. My wife and I first met Miss Keeler at a house party in July 1961 at Cliveden. I met Miss Keeler on about half a dozen occasions at Dr. Ward's flat when I called to see him and his friend. Miss Keeler and I were on friendly terms. There was no impropriety whatsoever in my acquaintanceship with Miss Keeler. And that was it. Or it should have been. The scandal could have possibly been contained there and then. But Profumo's boss, the Home Secretary, Henry Brooke, knew from a secret report that Profumo was lying. MI5 obviously knew about the Keeler affair and that Profumo had lied to the House of Commons, but to share all of their knowledge would have revealed the use of Stephen Ward in their scheme to trap Ivanov. What followed was a plan to throw Stephen Ward to the wolves. The Home Secretary was keen to prosecute Ward under the Official Secrets Act, but as the head of MI5 indicated that the evidence against him was somewhat shaky, the seed was planted that the buck would now be passed not to John Profumo but to Stephen Ward, Brooks' plan was to silence and discredit Ward and that he must first find a reason to arrest him. A relentless investigation was launched by the police. Stephen Ward's friends and patients were quizzed and his flat was placed under 24-hour surveillance. A case with no real basis of truth was slowly being built against him for living off the earnings of prostitutes. It was around this time that the People newspaper expressed an interest to run the story dropped by the Sunday pictorial and exposed Profumo as a liar. The editor, Sam Campbell, informed the police commissioner of the newspaper's intentions and he in turn informed the government. Profumo returned from a holiday in Venice with his wife. On the advice of the Lord Chancellor, who sent a telegram destroying any illusion that his lie would hold up, Profumo finally came clean. 5th of June 1963, John Profumo finally admitted his deception and resigned in disgrace. His resignation letter read in part, Dear Prime Minister, I said that there had been no impropriety in this association. To my very deep regret, I have to admit that this was not true. I have come to realise that by this deception I have been guilty of a grave misdemeanour. I cannot remain a member of your administration nor of the House of Commons. I cannot tell you of my deep remorse. Harold Macmillan wrote back, This is a great tragedy for you, your family and your friends. Nevertheless, I have no alternative 
but to advise the Queen to accept your resignation. Three days later, on the 8th of June, Stephen Ward was arrested. He was taken to Marylebone Police Station and charged that he, being a man, did on diverse dates between January 1961 and the 8th of June 1963, knowingly live wholly or in part on the earnings of prostitution at 17 Wimpole Mews, contrary to Section 30 of the Sexual Offences Act 1956. Other charges were to follow. Profumo may have lost his career, but much worse was to befall Stephen Ward. He had become the scapegoat for the government's humiliation and of a security service that was resolute in trying to cover its tracks. While Profumo had been permitted to evaporate from circulation, Ward was forced to remain in the full glare of publicity, chased by the press and abandoned by the people he thought were his friends. July the 22nd, 1963, at London's famous Old Bailey Criminal Court, Stephen Ward faced his accusers in what would be dubbed the trial of the century. It in fact became much more than just a trial, it was a media circus. Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis found themselves on the front pages of every newspaper, not only in this country but around the world. The public were desperate for the next juicy revelation, with crowds gathering ten deep outside and people queuing overnight for a seat in the small public gallery. Stephen Ward, the MI5 recruit, is treated like a common criminal, while MI5 stick to the rules of the spy game, plausible deniability. The agency that asked Ward to set up the honey trap now deserted him. The trial was to last eight days. The prosecution called witnesses for the first four and a half days and thereafter it was the turn of the defence. The prosecuting barrister was Mervyn Griffith-Jones, a man more than capable of moral outrage at the slenderest failing. He was so far adrift of modern sensibilities that famously, at the 1960 Lady Chatterley's lover obscenity trial, he had seriously asked the jury whether it was a book you'd want your wife and servants to read. Ward, however, could not have wished for a better defence counsel. James Burge was a friend and a patient of Ward's and was said to be the inspiration for Rumpel of the Bailey. Ward was accused of living off the earnings of prostitution. These immoral earnings were allegedly provided by Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis, as well as Ronna Ricardo and Vicky Barrett. There were two other charges brought forward, one of procuring a girl under 21 to have intercourse, and attempting to procure a girl under 21 to have sex with a third person. In order to convict Ward, the prosecution would have to prove that he was providing Christine and Mandy with goods and services for carrying out the trade of prostitution. They would also have to actually prove that they were prostitutes, and furthermore have the evidence of the two girls corroborated by independent witnesses. Christine was the first witness to appear. During cross-examination, she admitted having sex with Major James Elan about six times at Ward's flat and was paid £15 on each occasion. Ward knew nothing of these payments. Christine said that she had sex with Jack Profumo several times and on one occasion he gave her money to give to her mother. She also recalled having sex with Charles Claw, the millionaire financier, who paid her £50. Christine admitted to giving some of this money to Stephen Ward in her words, to pay my debts. On day two, Mandy Rice Davis would appear in the witness box. She would testify to having sex five or six times with a man referred to throughout the trial as the Indian Doctor. This was Emil Savundra, the corrupt chief of Fire Auto and Marine Insurance. More on that particular gentleman in a future episode. Mandy said that Savundra paid her between £15 and £25 a time. She also spoke of the time that she slept with Lord Astor. When told that Astor had denied her claim, she replied to the laughter of the court, well he would, wouldn't he? Mandy and Christine would both admit to giving Stephen Ward a few pounds here and there, but would insist that this was just for things like gas, electric and food at Wimpole Mews. Like Christine, Mandy admitted to having given Ward money occasionally. 
just a couple of pounds or something like that, she said, but it was not in return for him introducing me to men. You have to pay for where you live. The prosecution attempted to establish how the girls had met the men, trying to point out that Ward had been introducing them expressly for sexual services. The truth may have been revealed had Astor and Profumo actually been called as witnesses, but unfortunately for Ward, they were never required to appear. In short, the trial amounted to nothing more than a farce. Witnesses would state that Ward had nothing to do with the arrangements made with the girls. Others would retract statements previously made to the police. Ward himself was cross-examined by the prosecution on the fifth day. Much of this concentrated on attacking his morals, which, while greatly influencing the jury, it was not what he was actually on trial for. And in summary, the prosecution struggled to maintain that Ward was living on the earnings of the girls, bearing in mind that Christine had stated on the first day of the trial that she usually owed him more than she'd ever made, and still, the circus and the media frenzy trundled on. In summing up, Justice Marshall told the jury that they must decide three questions. Were Christine and Mandy prostitutes? Did Ward know that they were? And did he knowingly receive from them or others money for the introduction and facilities for sexual intercourse which he provided? As I've pointed out, throughout the trial, Bill Astor remained silent. Ward had been warned from the beginning not to expect anything from the establishment. And although he'd hoped that Astor would step forward, come to his aid and restore his good name, the judge would highlight the absence of any of Ward's influential friends. In a punishing manner, the judge managed to turn against Ward the fact that none of his high society friends were brave enough to come and speak up on his behalf, and it was a condemnation that had a profound effect on the jury. The court, as usual, rose at 4.30 that afternoon. Ward was devastated by the attitude of the judge. He turned to his solicitor, Jack Wheatley, and asked, What are my chances? Wheatley just replied, Guilty, and a two-year sentence. Ward would remark to a friend that someone had to be sacrificed. When the establishment wants blood, it gets it. It was the penultimate day of the trial. Ward was staying at the flat of a friend, Noel Howard Jones, in Chelsea. That evening he wrote several letters to be delivered and marked only if I am convicted and sent to prison. The following morning, Howard Jones found Ward unconscious in the living room. Ward was rushed to St Stephen's Hospital on the Fulham Road, where he remained in a coma. The trial continued that day in his absence, and the jury returned their decision just after 7pm. Ward was declared guilty on the first two counts of living on the immoral earnings of Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis. Sentencing was postponed by the judge until Ward could appear. But Ward had taken a lethal overdose of barbiturates and was not expected to survive. At St Stephen's Hospital, a prison officer stood guard to ensure that he didn't escape. This was of course entirely unlikely, as he had taken somewhere in the region of 14 to 20 sleeping tablets. Stephen Ward's condition began to worsen, and after 71 hours in a coma, he died at 3.45 on the afternoon of the 3rd of August 1963. Ward's funeral was held a week later with just a handful of people present. 21 British writers and artists, including John Osborne and Kenneth Tynan, sent a wreath of white roses with a card that read, To Stephen Ward, a victim of British hypocrisy. Mervyn Griffiths Jones, the prosecuting counsel, was said to have wept when told of Ward's death, as did Ward's defence counsel, James Burge. Burge said later, Ward's case was rigged. Judge Marshall murdered Stephen Ward, it's as simple as that. 
Throughout the trial, Ward's close friend Lord Astor would appear unconcerned and almost apathetic. Mandy Rice Davis took Ward's death badly, and Christine Keeler was distraught with grief before eventually being sentenced to nine months for perjury. Profumo slipped into relative obscurity, devoting the remainder of his life to charitable causes. He was awarded the CBE in 1975 and died in 2006, aged 91. Prime Minister Harold Macmillan admitted that the scandal had inflicted a deep, bitter and lasting wound. Four months after Profumo's resignation, Macmillan, too ill to carry on, handed the premiership to Lord Hume. One year later, in October 1964, 13 years of Conservative rule came to an end when Harold Wilson narrowly won the general election. Profumo had believed that no one would dare to publish the truth and was convinced that he could get away with it as he was protected by the ruling class that he was so proud to be a member of. A few people eventually stuck their necks out and spoke up, and even today, further revelations and details are still being revealed. Although today in a world where political scandal is commonplace and an almost everyday occurrence, one can't help but look back over these events and think that this is where it all began. Here, the media made celebrities of Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis, while the establishment made one of its own quite wrongly the villain. Stephen Ward was just an amateur caught up in the complex world of espionage, and the tragedy is that he never really knew the rules of the game. Next time, why don't you join me as I take you back to tell the story of a man who had the vision to imagine the impossible. A man who would take four cocky, scruffy lads from Liverpool and would mould them into a musical act that would become bigger than the king of rock and roll himself. See you next time for the story of Brian Epstein. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or take a look at our website, rainbowvalley.org. You can send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com and you can also email me at that address and I will send you a bonus mixtape episode featuring music relating to today's show. This has been a Stinking Paws production.